Black Cats Run Podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll. This is Black Cats Run. Too much faith in the poison. Buffering, tolerance, clearance, utilization, etc., And then you layer onto that things like the rule of thirds or other strange logics of illogic that we use to try to make sense of. Are we actually moving in the direction we want to go? Our bias of what progress and the right form of self-assessment towards progress should look like limits our ability to improve. We pursue through blindness. In this episode, what do you actually want to do when you take a concept like lactate threshold and try to organize training around it. If you're enjoying the podcast, check us out on Instagram at Black Cats Run. We're also available to consult with people on their training. Let's get into today's episode. Faith and poison. We have an unquestioning acceptance of certain stipulations of how training intensity converts to physical adaptation and essentially, right, how is that going to make us faster or stronger or better able to achieve uh, the kinds of goals or targets that we set out for ourselves when we get into athletics or the kinds of goals and targets that we develop over time as we gain more experience and new things if you will, right, become appealing to us. It could be completing certain kinds of events, covering certain kinds of distances, doing certain kinds of times, maybe seeking out um, individual placings relative to other people in a competitive field, etc. And you see this interesting phenomena, which is that the capacity to share information and ideas readily does not always equate to a more effective understanding. And this is, I think, historically very clearly demonstrated as a long-standing perseveration over whether or not there is wisdom in crowds or whether or not crowds are simply psychotic and the collective uh, consensus of individuals Um, isn't really going to be that sophisticated or complex and that it's in pursuit of other things. There was a survey where I want to say the British Royal Society, but um, some European um, institution um, had a uh, Arctic uh, expedition vessel and they were like, oh, we can get the public engaged in this by asking them uh, to name it. And so after several, you know, rounds of suggestion and then voting, um, the you know collective public via this um, the internet um, decided that the the boat should be named Bodie McBoatface, which it's sort of like on the one hand, right? It's all about the laughter, but on the other hand, it's all about the laughter, right? What's our incentive when we're in groups of people? Okay, um, this idea that we're going to come together as groups and increasingly larger groups where anonymity 
you know, starts to become more and more of not just a possibility, but just an inevitability changes our sense of engagement. You think about the Marxist concept of alienation uh, from labor, that when people don't feel or experience any connection between the time and energy spending and the work product that they're creating, we see declining levels of performance and engagement. And as athletes, I think we experience alienation from labor all the time, where we can put significant amounts of time and energy into the process of training and preparation and, you know, the accessory identity or lifestyle choices um, that some people additionally choose to make around being an athlete. And that as those decisions start to lead to less and less evident returns, we start to experience that same sense of alienation from labor and that the effort that we're putting into something is unproductive and it's not successful. But we also have this other understanding that it's inherently the case that the body will adapt um, to stress. And that's not relegated to 1% of 1% of the population. Uh, the Olympic movement does not identify those shockingly scarce individuals who will exhibit um, physiological adaptation in response to environmental stress, while the rest of us just fundamentally lack any real ability to do that. But I think that that sort of belief or perspective has sort of come uh, to sort of bleed its way into the culture when we think about things like talent, who's talented um, and who isn't talented. But when we sort of, again, blindly um, accept certain premises, if you will, of how training should or shouldn't work, I think what we need to recognize is that we are feeding into a scale of ignorance that collectively, as a group of people, um, whether it's via Instagram, um, via books about training, magazines, right? This is not a, a digital technology issue. Um, we see kind of like more and more, I think, evidence that that kind of like devolvement of, of mob mentality of kind of like almost hive consciousness uh, where the behavior of people in groups erodes. I mean, in the classroom, uh, one of the reasons why classes with um, many students, I think, are not as good as terms of creating environments for learning as classes with few students is because that sense of like personhood and identity and accountability and connection to the effort that is being applied by the individual to the outcome or the process or the experience or the environment or whatever you want to think of that as becomes increasingly diluted. And when you bring 400 or 500, um, say, ninth grade students into an auditorium for an assembly, you see really low level of engagement, right? We tend to believe, especially in Western culture, that it's good to assemble people in groups and it's good to look for this sort of like um, mass voice of the people, but this idea, too, though, where you have um, like, well, if you take a jar of marbles and you, you know, take a guess from a thousand people and you average that out, you're probably going to get the right number of marbles. I think that kind of phenomena is then used to sort of reach to the wisdom of the crowd that, you know, the people know something. But this idea of there being justice and equitability and fairness in decisions made through popular consensus has been deeply hammered and embedded into our cultural ideology. And we're not here on the Black Cats Run podcast to advocate an overthrow of society. Um, society is generally a good thing. But this concept 
that because we see lots of different sort of people saying things, that it must be true, I think is fundamentally absurd. Um, whether that's drinking turmeric shots in the morning when you're going to work out, um, whether that's you know repeating the same kinds of specific workouts, uh, whether that's everybody applying the language of uh, energy, energy systems, um, dictating and, and being turned on and turned off as you move through a spectrum of exertion. You know, when we see people saying this stuff and we see a lot of people saying the same things, I think our bias is to say, well, that's the popular consensus and that, you know, that must therefore be best. But it's also, I think, very much the case that if you do the average thing, you will get the average result. And if you do the average thing and you get the average result, maybe that's okay. Maybe for some people, their goal or their ambition only really extends to really fitting in and, and being within that average space. And I don't say that scornfully. I think for some people, um, that is a goal, right? Maybe the goal is literally just to be able to be at the a level of you know, the largest majority of participants because they feel that that's kind of where they're finding that meaningful social experience versus being on, you know, the out more sort of grinding towards the outlier of the higher end or the lower end. Um, and because there's a, naturally a lack of understanding from the center towards um, the higher level performers or the people who are in terms of maybe at least just their velocity, um, maybe are the lower level performers. I'm not trying to say that I think that your velocity uh, gives you any inherent quality um, of personhood as an athlete, but it is the case that improved fitness increases what you can do. You can do more interesting things because you don't experience as much fatigue and you can do things more frequently because you don't experience as much fatigue and you're not as likely to get injured um, or hurt through training, which is also really important, not just in terms of being able to do more things, but in terms of just like the quality of the experience, right? But I think additionally, um, it's the case that when you improve fitness, you just tend to see uh, an improvement in velocity. And that's something that lactate threshold reflects. So when we look at this stuff, right, it's not easy to try to make a determination of what we should do. And I think that as the idea of the professional athlete um, has expanded to become increasingly, can you take and construct a identity of being a person who participates um, in an athletic discipline or this concept now of multi-sport, which to me is, I think, totally fine, but also kind of weird because, you know, it never occurred to me to consider myself a multi-sport athlete or that it was somehow special or significant that I did more than one athletic, you know, activity. I mean, it, to me, it just sort of seemed like normal that, you know, you have lot different things that you do and, and some of them are endurance sports and some of them are you know playing golf or you know whatever the case may be and maybe that's a traditional concept of of being a jock and I'm a jock in denial I really don't know um, if that's the case but you know maybe however when we're looking at this spectrum of experience I think we see that there's an incentive um, for people to construct uh, an identity of being an athlete, and then see, can I build a narrative 
whether that's um, through a narrative of the things that I do, or as they say, a picture is worth a thousand words, can I construct narratives um, through the art of photography? Photography of where I am, photography of what I eat, uh, photography of how I look when I do what I do, um, and then can I get enough audience that I can then gain financial rewards because people will want to uh, ask me to bring things into that space that is consumed by that audience. And if that's the case, right, we start to see what the customer is always right as a fundamental pr principle start to have increasing influence and that people are going to be designing their narratives um, based on what people respond to. And I really enjoy hearing people talk about, you know, the algorithm this, the algorithm that. And I think that's a fascinating um, response to this stuff because it seems like it's a strategy that people are using to essentially displace, uh, you know, the responsibility of human behavior on human behavior and then instead say, oh, well, it's this technology thing, you know, and that this the technology is has been designed and it's corrupting us and, and dragging us down in some way. Well, no, like we decide what we're looking at. We decide what we are pausing on the longest, we are giving likes to these things. And then, you know, the quote unquote algorithm, right, you know, is just the recognition of, you know, what's your search history. And, you know, here are things that are similar to that. Um, and it's a logical incentive, right? And that's what we are doing as people, though, is we are creating the things that the audience wants. And so it becomes the customer is always right. So it's what is the masses of people um, the consumer willing to consume. And then that starts to become overwhelmingly influential in terms of how we train. And one of the things that we like to consume is we like to consume uh, misery. And we like to consume, um, you know, scenes of intensity and hardship. I mean, we see this in movies. I mean, movies where people are blowing each other up and shooting each other in the head are extremely popular and there can be little to no um, narrative significance to it and and people will still um, watch it and I'm just as guilty as anybody else of watching action movies and enjoying them and I don't mean to criticize them per se um, but I think it is indicative of the nature of the things that we find engaging and meaningful which is to say that these things are not nearly as profound as we sometimes like to imagine I saw a bill billboard um, the other day driving through Boston, uh, advertising, I think like no bowl or some brand like that. And, um, you know, half of the billboard was somebody's running, you know, full sprinting form, of course. Um, and it just said training is everything. So this idea of, of people being, you know, totally consumed and, you know, that being an athlete is a thing you are just constantly, right? You know, that's a part of what draws our attention. You know, it's these idea of, you know, the hero, that the hero is always the hero, um, that the hero only exists when it's, um, you know, in, in its heroic journey, uh, in their heroic journey. All of these factors then can essentially function as forms of uh, confirmation bias, because this is what we think is valid. This is what we see. And, you know, it's the dynamic of just because it's exciting to watch something doesn't mean it's exciting to participate in something. And overall, there's a huge disconnect, I think, between the things that are enjoyable to consume or watch versus the things that we would actually want to 
reasonably participate in. You know, war movies, very successful. Do you want to be out in that situation um, where you are, you know, in the case of imminent death? I mean, I suppose if you believe in the myth of survival, that you think, you know, if you train and prepare, you will be immune to death or serious injury. Um, maybe you do. But I think by and large, if we're being reasonable, um, you know, the answer would be no. And, you know, that's always the case with these things. You know, it's whether it's fantastical um, or hyper-realistic, like these things that are most appealing to look at are very much the opposite of the lifestyles most of us want to lead. And I think there's a reason for that, because I think that that's going beyond um, a level of stress that would actually feel productive and rewarding. And I think we do seek out sometimes maybe lifestyles that are a little bit too sedentary and a little bit too under-demanding because um, we have the capacity to create those for ourselves um, in our modern society and that that has its own detriments. But by and large, I think that, you know, that is also reflective of the fact that the kinds of things that we look at and that the, con- the customer says is the right thing to see other people do, you know, working out from dawn to dusk. You know, I think part of the reason why that's capturing our imagination is because we know we would never want to do that. But then when we get engaged in these kinds of activities, well, then and we say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this now, right? And instead of like consuming it and watching it, you're trying to do it. Well, what does that mean? How do you engage with that? So let's think about training instead of from this sort of like perspective of cultural consensus and what seems to be the answer based on the stuff that we see, um, you know, go away from chugging turmeric um, in the morning because we think it's going to make a difference um, and, you know, hosing ourselves down with, you know, various like, you know, products that have, you know, references to lactate, um, you know, in them and try to think about this from a sort of evolutionary perspective like how does the body actually function and can we use that to reach some more rational conclusions let's think of training from that perspective which is going to be the body's reaction to an environment so i would say there are basically only two zones of training and i would say a zone of training is a a range of similar perceived exertion and stress okay and which will lead to given frequent engagement with that zone over time, improvement in fitness and performance. There's a efficiency response zone, and then there's a survival response zone. And then outside of that, there's nothing else. Okay. There is a level below efficiency response where if you sit on your couch, you are alive and you are existing in an environment that technically has a level of stress to it. But that is a situation in which your body is going to be turning off adaptive responses because there is lesser demand to the point where the body doesn't need to be producing these things that if you think about, um, you know, the idea that it's epigenetics, that, you know, different environments are changing the way um, the body is, you know, expressing different genetic pieces um, in response to those. When you're in an environment that doesn't put those adaptive pressures in place, the body epigenetically, right, logically, isn't going to do that. Why? Well, because it makes no sense from an evolutionary perspective. It's a huge waste of energy to constantly be trying to power these things. Um, 
and I'll talk about this more later, but when you're training around lactate threshold as an organizing concept, it's still hard, you know? It's just not hard in a bad way. Um, It's hard because, you know, you get tired and you need to sleep more because you have fatigue more because you're burning a lot of energy more frequently and then you're hungry more because you're burning more energy more frequently. And that's hard, you know, because it's something that's different. Um, but it's not hard in the sense of like, you know, I'm making a, a pain face um, and I'm, you know, squeezing my brain like the rind of a grapefruit in order to try to get every last drop out of myself. And that it's only if I can get that absolute last drop that I will be able to get any better. Outside of the survival response, on the high end, I would just say, you know, that's failure or death. (laughs) That's the level of stress that your body can't respond to. And so that's going to lead to cramping. It's going to lead to blacking out. Um, It's going to lead to just total psychological, like, shutdown of, nope, we're not doing this anymore. Um, Some people define that as weakness, but uh, I think that that's totally idiotic. Uh, It's good to be able to um, know when there's a limit. And, and to be able to respond to that. Um, because if you don't, bad things happen. It could be severe injury. Um, and, and again, it could just be being dead. Um, and I think if we think about um, survival response versus efficiency response, I think we can recognize that all these ideas of, well, you have this intensity and this intensity and that intensity. And, you know, it's true that in training, you want to do different things. But the idea that we should be rationalizing it because we think that there's each of these very specific energy systems, um, right, which are this thing that's totally removed from the mind, and that the goal is to engage those systems, and that therefore, uh, as an athlete, right, again, we're back to the point of path of discipline here where it's like, okay, I need to subjugate Um, that mind state so that I can be mentally strong and I can access the training needed to engage these systems. And, you know, I know that I'm doing that if I'm really struggling because I basically don't want myself to get to that point. And the really great special athletes are the people who can do that repeatedly where it's hard for them, but they can master it. They have some mental techniques, et cetera, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, with the survival response concept, Um, You could think of that in a more tangible example um, where, you know, people who get really good uh, tend to do faster paces in training. And I think for a lot of really good um, high school runners to call it and then, you know, I would say for the majority of college runners, um, you then get in a situation where it sort of becomes this thing of like, you know, all of your training should be seen to be faster than seven minute pace. And that, you know, any sort of more specific work or tempo we work or however you want to term that should be at least five minute pace or faster um, as in the, in the, you know, five minutes to 559 pace zone. And that all, you know, real speed or, you know, repetition interval training should be, you know, under five minute pace. It should be, you know, four minute pace to 459. And those kinds of ideas, right? Well, that's an example of looking around, seeing what other people are doing. That's a sense of you know, ego protection, that I need this to feel good about myself. And those kinds of things uh, are what can push us to be in a certain state. And I think the distinction that needs to be made is that, and I'll give you a specific example of this in a moment, but the distinction that needs to be made is for the people who are effective, 
right? They might be claiming that they're in that survival response level where they're just surviving the training. And because it's this extreme survival situation, that's what allows them to adapt. And that they never stay in that sort of more like efficient response zone, right? If we're saying there's just two zones, they're never in that first zone, they're in that harder zone, because that's where you get better. Um, there's a workout on YouTube with Mo Katir, who um, just in a recently in a 3000 meter indoor track race, um, uh, broke the world record in the 3000. Um, although another uh, athlete finished just ahead of him. So they both went under the world record. Um, and the reason why I'm talking about Mo Katir, even though he got second is you can find a video of him working out um, at elevation doing uh, in the Sierra Nevada. And I only say that because it contextualizes, right, a more stressful or harder environment to produce or perform work. But he's running around um, an outdoor track doing 20 times 400 um, with a 30 second rest. And then I think a longer rest, maybe every uh, five or 10 or something. Um, and he was doing them in about 68 or 69 seconds. And he had a uh, lactate meter and the lactate throughout the workout seemed to be basically about 2.9 to 3. And that's really not actually in that high survival demand zone. I think if the majority of people had access to that, right, if there is a way to sort of non-invasively measure or track your lactate through your watch, I think that we would see is that most people are in a situation where they are constantly accumulating more and more lactate. And that we think that that's productive um, because we think that that's where the benefit is happening and that's not the case. You know, the fact that Mo Katir goes out and then turns around and sets this world record, um, you know, albeit another runner beats them and beats him in that race, I think that that's indicative of the benefit of training under control. And I think we're going to see um, increasing discussion of and utilization of the lactate meter. And then we're going to see a tapering off because most people aren't going to really have a concept of what they're trying to do with it. And so it is going to be a total waste of money because they don't understand how to make use of it. And then that will be taken to suggest that, okay, the lactate stuff is just a fad. But historically, the evidence doesn't support that. We've talked on the pod previously about how uh, the Arthur Lydiard training basically was sort of drawing a line in the sand pedagogically. And trying to learn in a pedagogical uh, sense, uh, right, trying to teach ourselves to identify, well, what is that level of exertion? Um, that can be very difficult uh, for some of us, especially when it is in conflict with a bunch of other things that we've already learned. And I think for adult athletes who've had previous athletic experience and all of the sort of like psychological conditioning, um, not in a like productive training sense, but conditioning in the sense of, I guess, maybe kind of being culturally brainwashed into perceiving what training and exertion really is meant to be, that that's challenging. And I think you see this, um, people I know that I went to college with, for example, not all of them, but I think there are some people who I wonder sometimes like, okay, I remember these people you know, being very strong. And it seems like now they have a really different level of engagement with this stuff. And I think what happens, and I'm projecting to be clear my own past experience, is that sometimes there's a sense of like, well, this is what it was to train, and this is how it should feel, and this is what the speed should be. 
and you sort of try to go out and get back into that and it doesn't work. And it's because, you know, I think that, you know, the, that quote unquote aerobic ability, if you will, has just depreciated so much from lack of engaging with it. And you take into consideration the fact that the training that was being done, you know, in memory um, really wasn't that great in actuality anyway, right? The people were running well, usually despite what they were doing. So you're trying to apply a really, you know, overwhelming level of work to try to get back to where you were or get back to that sort of general capacity of fitness and strength. And shifting away from that is important, but it's challenging to get to that point. So I think one step is we want to simplify and we want to say that, okay, there's just two zones. There's this zone where we're, we have efficient response and that's the zone in which we are building up and to the point of sort of peak mitochondrial utilization. And then there's the point beyond that where blood lactate starts to accumulate more and more And why does it do that? Well, it does that because you're exceeding the body's ability to use it. That's not a good thing, okay? You can work beyond that, and that's actually really cool um, biologically and evolutionarily speaking, right? The body has a capacity to perform work uh, beyond just that, that system, but it's also extremely inefficient, and the body knows it's inefficient, and evolutionarily it's developed all of these stress signals to tell us it's inefficient, to try to get us to get out of that state. Um, because it leads to massive fatigue, which, you know, in the short term, right, we can tolerate that. Um, but then, you know, if you go just out of that immediate context, you know, that fatigue becomes very limiting um, in the, the near future um, and can lead to, you know, injury. And you could see how in a quote unquote state of nature, right, that would probably not be ideal, right? You really want to be in that more efficient state. And, you know, it's given rise to all of the recovery modalities and stuff, which is just like the only reason why we have these recovery modalities is because we're training um, too hard and we're, tr- we're training too frequently and at that intensity, okay, training frequency is good, but training frequency um, too intensively is bad. So we can make that differentiation. And with that differentiation, I think we can see that the debate about training um, is you know, once again, just about can you get better without being miserable? And I think the answer is yes. And I think the answer is that's really the only way to get better. And if you want to learn a little bit more about this in detail, um, you can check out our episode, High Intensity Trauma. We talked about this, like why are we prone to continuing to go back to that state? And I think this focus on this sort of survival response, the idea that, well, that's where the good things happen. Right? That we have to go out and have this like rite of passage level experience every time we want to improve. We have to go and do a, a training camp, you know. And I think training camp is a hysterical concept because the idea that you're going to go and you're going to spend five days or seven days or ten days and that you're going to come back and you're like, whoa, that's so different. You know, it's just absurd. Okay. Um, that's just not true at all. I mean, if you're totally out of shape, and then you go and you start training for five to 10 days, you'll probably in that scale notice a difference. But if you have any kind of like significant um, engagement with fitness, going off for 10 days isn't really going to do anything. It doesn't mean that people shouldn't do that. 
and if people want to call it a training camp, they can. But I, I just think people shouldn't bring with that the idea that, oh, I'm going to this training camp. I'm going to see this, you know, huge gain in fitness. That's not what you should be thinking there, right? Um, it could be something that maybe makes it, you know, more fun or interesting or changes the scenery um, in order to, you know, do your training, right? And that that could be fun and positive and worthwhile for all of those reasons. And those genuinely are 100% valid and worth pursuing. But the idea that you're going to see some massive transformative thing is sort of absurd. Um, But I also think the notion of the training camp is a part of this sort of trivialization of the idea of quote-unquote base training. And I think just calling it base training um, has become a form of dismissal because we've changed uh, the weight and the significance of that verbiage so much over time. And I think, you know, we've sort of, by trivializing that, we've sort of, we work to push aside the value that is actually found there. Um, and, you know, we get back to that, you know, I need to hurt to improve space. That's sort of, I got to be in like a state of survival crisis in order to exhibit adaptive response. And that, you know, base training is just sort of like a waste of time almost. Um, because I've seen stuff over maybe the last 10 years, I want to say, where, um, you know, people, you know, is the base phase all it's cracked up to be? Or athletes saying how lamenting, you know, how well, if, you know, if I could do it again, I would, you know, certainly do more threshold during the base phase. Um, you know, in a cycling context, I've, you know, heard this sort of criticism of, you know, people just used to think that, you know, the base is doing a thousand easy miles on the bike before you do anything more intensive. But actually, you can just get after it. You can just do hit and, you know, hits just as effective as, you know, doing base training. And uh, no, the answer is no, it's not. Okay. You know, it's it's not more effective. And, you know, the idea that you can prove that because of studies or evaluations done on an extremely short time scale. Okay, that's false. All right, look at that on the scale of 12 months, five years, 10 years. And you tell me how then, you know, a statistically meaningful group of athletes who only implement HIT training, okay, in lieu of so-called base training, you tell me what their improvement is going to look like. I would be shocked if those athletes are still doing it at the end of the 10 years. Probably a lot of them would be done after a year, right? Never mind even getting to five. That matters, okay? Participation, continued engagement matters, okay? So when we're trivializing this base phase, okay, concept, we are dismissing and we are minimizing. We're taking away from, you know, we're... we're Stripping the pedagogical potential to teach people the concept of making this differentiation between where do we see training being most productive and effective, right? And where do we see ourselves crossing into the just because you can doesn't mean you should state. And that differentiation where we can define, I think, reasonably as lactate threshold, right? If we look at what's the point at which we can't continue to utilize all of that lactate energy that we are um, producing and shuttling through the blood, okay? Well, that's the point at which it starts to go up because that means it's it's backed up. It's not backed up in an actual clogging sense, like nothing is being clogged in your blood because of the lactate, but that it is, you know, there in excess of what can be used and that we know that as we get faster, we're able to do more work 
or more velocity, depending on how you want to measure or control for that, we can produce more work or more, more velocity before the lactate starts to get, quote-unquote, backed up, okay? And where do we see that exhibited? Well, Arthur Lydiard's thing is saying that, you know, you're training, trying to do as much training as possible for as long as possible at 70 to 100% of that state, right? And he's not saying lactate threshold. They're not running around with blood lactate tests in the 50s and the 60s in New Zealand or really anywhere else. That portable technology is a pretty new thing, relatively speaking. But that's what they're identifying, right? Is they're making that differentiation. And when we think about that, right? When we're pushing that to the side, okay, that's what we're pushing to the side. We're pushing to the side this capacity, right, to produce a lot of training really effectively. And, you know, I remember uh, this idea of base training sort of originating for me in terms of my sport of running being this sort of eight-week period from the end of June to the beginning of XC in August. And it always felt really long. And I think for a lot of people, it felt really long. I think part of the reason it just felt long was an optical illusion because usually you weren't very fit. So it sort of was like initially that struggle to like just get generally comfortable doing the running again after maybe having some sort of like obligatory hiatus from doing it. Um, And then, you know, you're most part, right, a lot of people are doing that by themselves, and it's really hot because it's summer. And if you're a younger person, you're probably not really that good necessarily at waking up early enough. And even if you do, if you live in New England, it's still going to be shockingly humid in the morning anyway. So it's sort of a pick your poison thing in that regard. Um, But the reality is eight weeks is a really small amount of time. And I think the literate athletes, right, would sort of do six months, but, you know, literate basically was says as long as possible. And one of the things he talks about is this concept of sort of aerobically that you can sort of improve almost um, indefinitely, which is probably not literally true, but in a sense of, you know, for I think for all intents and purposes, there's probably very few, if maybe nobody has ever really totally maxed that out, right? You to do that, you'd have to just train um, like that for, you know, 20 years and not do anything else and just prioritize all of your time around that. And I'm, you know, nobody really does that. And if they do that, well, they're never going out and racing and never appearing in a uh, competitive space. So we don't get to see what that would look like. And I think that the irony is that the only period where genuinely transformative gains, the kinds of gains that sort of have this semi-permanence where it would take a long time to detrain out of them, um, those are really happening through that so-called base experience um, of training and that everything else is just trying to actualize a core fixed capacity already present. But this idea of like the base, right, we've taken this concept and we've sort of somehow managed to warp that term into being a negative or a pathetic thing. Um, when we should, I think, frankly, be looking at that in a very different perspective, that, you know, the base is called the base because it's an effort to draw attention to its fundamental value. Everything that happens, quote unquote, after the base phase is just trying to actualize a core fixed fitness ability already present, right? And it's applying that concept of practice to what we're trying to do. 
right? If you know how to play an instrument, it's going to be easier for you to learn a new instrument than uh, somebody who's never played music trying to learn that instrument. You might both still have to work and, and practice and get better, but it's certainly the case that one person is going to have a significant advantage because they have all of this like cognitive stuff in place. And like, that's what you're doing is you're then specifically trying to like, you know, practice and apply these kinds of things that you're doing with that fitness, but we don't want to. And that's where suddenly you see these huge um, improvements in terms of expressed performance. And I think that just creates this concept of like, okay, well, I did all of this stuff and it's only when I started doing this stuff that I got faster. So we say, oh, well, that's how I get faster. So why am I doing this other stuff? I should just focus on this stuff. And I think people say that it's very easy to reach that conclusion, but it also should be really easy to see why that's not correct. But it, I mean, you can see sort of the problem there, right? Is that you're only going to see the evidence to support the value of your training uh, once you sort of add on this layer of, okay, I, I want to kind of try to begin to groove towards, you know, my, my targeted, um, you know, running, right? If you're targeted event, you want to run the 1500 or the 5000, you know, well, then there's all the sort of specific aspects of doing that, that you might work towards, but you don't really get to your full ability to run a 5000 by just, you know, trying to grind down that pace from the beginning over six or eight months and just sort of incrementally doing, you know, whatever they might do, you know, repeat half miles or something and just smashing that once a week. It doesn't work. Um, look at high school cross-country teams everywhere, I think, are the best data set to, to evidence the ineffectualness of this. The reason why we talk so much about these quote-unquote conceptual aspects of this stuff. And I, you know, say in quotations because I don't really like the implication that if we say something is conceptual, it's like a waste of time or not useful. I think for some people, actionable means tell me specifically what to do um, at a level of instruction that I don't have to understand what I'm doing. You can take action, right, from that, and you can then you know, say that that's actionable, but that's not effective. Okay. Uh, You can do that and you're not going to get better. Really. Ultimately, you're going to have it. You're not going to get out of that negative relationship with athletics and you're going to go through short-term experiences. I'm I'm doing this stuff and then, and then I'm burning out and I'm collapsing, um, you know, internally in terms of my level of interest and engagement is just sort of dropping out. And there's that sense of, well, unless I can do that and be in that headspace, that mental space, that that's what's necessary to prepare to do this stuff um, at a given level, then I think you're just like, okay, you know, you're basically, you know, doing it the wrong way. And because number one, right, challenge number one is identifying the intensity. And then challenging challenge number two is planning the training. And that stress recovery model Um, at least as it's popularly conceptualized, is wrong in the sense that it only exists because of the way in which we currently engage with these stresses. So we have to change our understanding of what the stresses are in order to think about this stuff differently. Because if you tell somebody to go, well, do easy, kind of, you know, just like recovering, chilling out effort. Well, if you have one concept of what that means, and you haven't replaced that or developed that by discussing the ideas, then your actionable thing is going to be go go do that in that particular way. But what we're saying is that all aspects of this stuff 
are busted and that we need to change the way we're thinking about this, right? And so you can't design training um, without, you know, developing a conceptual understanding. And, you know, I've found in general in practice that it's really not possible to uh, just sort of arbitrarily write people a schedule and, and just give them something that works. I mean, that's a false positive because it's just like, okay, if I give somebody stress, um, they'll probably exhibit response to that stress. And as long as, you know, I throw in enough emphasis on recovery or days off, um, they'll probably exhibit some improvement. But the goal, I think, isn't to just show this like small scale, you know, level of improvement, just, but to sort of make some fundamental holistic changes. So we want to be below that proficiency threshold line. Now, using the lactate meteor, meter, lactate meteor just comes out of the sky, crashes into your skull and changes your view of the world. Um, using the lactate meter, I mean to say, we would be able to do this stuff, right, and identify it from that point of view. But I will tell you honestly that in practice, it becomes immediately very obvious what the intensity actually is. And that's what you need, that you need that pedagogical moment to sort of click um, because once you see it, it actually makes sense because it's very clear um, where that line of separation is, right? Or where that sort of zone of static um, is, where you're going from that efficiency response zone to that survival response zone. But if you've trained your brain to block that out in a sense and prioritize, I need to be at this level of maximum stress and strain, well, then it's going to be hard to recognize that uh, because you're shutting down your ability to engage with that in the way that's actually effective and meaningful. So that idea, right, be below that proficiency threshold. And I think, you know, that's where, too, some people arrive at it and it just works for them and they just figure it out in an autodidactic sense. And it can be really difficult to communicate that to people. And it takes a lot of talking and a lot of conversation. Um, and you know that's one of the values that I hope that this podcast has to people listening to it, is that it's a space for you to listen and, and get those kinds of ideas. And um, I, I've said before, but you know, again, specifically relevant here, you know, we're also available um, to consult uh, with people um, about your training. And if you're interested in that, you can send us a message on um, our Instagram at Black Cats Run, and we'd be happy to talk with you. But you know, the hit truthers, um, I think, has sort of, have sort of reasserted themselves as having uh, primacy by relegating uh, the ideas like base training and sort of, you know, trotting all across the idea of, you know, things practice towards improvement being kind of like a Zen positive experience that actually, you know what, it actually feels kind of good. And that's why like people would actually want to do it a lot. And um, that, you know, people who get good at stuff, um, you know, aren't actually getting get good at it because they hate themselves um, the whole time. But um, if we think it's a poison or whatever, right, uh, we might have this build immunity um, response or mentality to it. Quote, athletes running over measured courses fairly regularly are inclined to pressure themselves into becoming competitive about it. They want to cover the course faster each time, or can be tempted into trying to do so. If they just go out and run for, say, an hour and a half with the pressure off, we seem to get better results. 
Keep this firmly in mind. Unquote. Arthur Lydiard. So when we think about that concept, right, it's very clear that there's a pedagogical goal here to try to guide people, direct people towards making a reasonable interpretation, a reasonable understanding of what's really going on in terms of the training environment, the training situation, Um, and that we are constructing an environment of stress, okay? It's not work out this, work out that. You know, I've had um, a few years ago, I was trying to help somebody with their athletics, and we just reached a point of absolute impasse, I think, because their paradigm um, was focused on, you know, what's the workout? Just tell me the workouts. I need to know what the special workouts are. That, you know, you have these special workouts and you're not giving them to me or whatever. And it's like, you know, now I look back at that and I realize, well, we were just in two different, totally different spaces of, of conceptual understanding. And, you know, I lacked at the time the capacity to really effectively articulate and give on that understanding um, across. And that individual similarly, and for their part, you know, also did not recognize that, you know, we were just at as cross, cross purposes in terms of what we were trying to interpret. Um, here's a example of what it looks like when you're trying to build training. Uh, this is also from Arthur Lydiard. Quote, the following schedule, which is a progression, concerns itself more with distance than time and does carry the risk that, in running measured distances over regular courses, you will begin to compete with yourself. Monday, 15 kilometers at one half effort over undulating course. Tuesday, 25 kilometers at one quarter effort over reasonably flat course. Wednesday, 20 kilometers at one half effort over hilly course. Thursday, 30 kilometers at one quarter effort over reasonably flat course. Friday, 15 kilometers at one half effort over undulating course. Saturday, 35 kilometers at one quarter effort over reasonably flat course. Sunday, 25 kilometers at one quarter effort over any type of terrain. Unquote. Arthur Lydiard. So when we look at this concept here, right, we see the admonition right at the outset that when you're going to do this, you can't compete with yourself, right? Keep the pressure off, okay? Um, trying to stay within yourself, right? Resisting temptation to go faster. Um, You know, like you see this emphasis of language here. And I think when I hear people talk about that stuff, that's totally ignored because people are just like, well, what are the paces? You know, tell me the paces. I just need to know, you know, in this sort of like, you know, greedy goblin like (laughs) mindset of, you know, just not seeing, you know, what's really going on here. Um, and you can see other examples, uh, you know, if you look at, if you ever get a chance to read um, Running with Lydiard, you know, he has other example schedules in there. Um, and right, that's the thing is it's not about workouts, it's about schedules. And a schedule represents a kind of environment. And I think for some people, they look at that stuff and it's like weirdly unsatisfying because it's like, well, why would I want to do this or that particular thing? That just doesn't seem to be meaningful um, or specific or whatever, but it's like, it's happening in that space. It's just about spending time with frequency doing these kinds of things. 
Now, um, I know that John Marcus and Steve Magnus aren't listening to this podcast, but in the hypothetical event that um, this podcast becomes, um, you know, the number one podcast and finally, as it rightfully should, displaces Joe Rogan, um, I want to clarify that uh, this is no swipe at um, the intention of uh, their podcast or other people in general and trying to understand um, better, you know, how people have trained. Um, but, you know, here's a quote um, from episode 98 from the Uncoaching podcast at approximately 12 minutes in, um, quote, six straight months of what he called marathon conditioning. I know no one in the modern era who does 100 miles a week for six months, unquote. I think this distinction of the modern era is very interesting because it's implying that we're in like a totally different modality now, right? That like our era is distinct and modern and that like post-physiology and, you know, post other understandings, we just know how to run better. And I think that there's an, in it maybe an inadvertent um, consequence of that. And I'm thinking about this, like as historians, as historians try to make distinctions and sort of say, well, this was this era or epoch or period. And then there's this new era epoch or period. Um, And that when you use the phrase modern era, it's really difficult to do that without lending a degree of sort of like posturing of preeminence and then also dismissiveness towards, um, you know, that other perspective or possibility. And I think it's extremely significant that Lydiard is not assigning paces, he's assigning exertions. And I think that that's more, quote unquote, maybe modern, if we're going to use modern as the term as it's being used by John Marcus, I believe, if we're going to use modern to mean like, better and superior to in methodology approach, understanding um, efficacy and outcome, then I think that, you know, we have to, you know, maybe say that Lydiard is being modern and more modern than we realize because he's, you know, looking pedagogically at how can I teach people to recognize what's going on. And this idea of like they're going to the salt mines and just doing these hundred miles a week and right, projecting our own concept of what that means, you know, isn't really a correct because like people haven't devolved um, some sort of like a capacity to resist, you know, rigor um, since, you know, the 1950s or the 1960s. Um, we'd like to feel that things are a long time ago. We like to feel that people are older, maybe because it makes us feel that our time on earth for ourselves will be longer. But that's a little bit of a myth. Um, you know, if you're going to train like that for six months, it's only going to be effective and sustainable. And clearly it was both for the people he specifically coached. Um, and he's not responsible for the fact that uh, people um, he didn't coach, you know, apply you know, this concept incorrectly. Um, you know, so without taking a dig um, at the Uncoaching podcast in this context, I just think it's an incorrect assertion to say that the 100 miles a week concept is somehow bogus or busted. And, you know, working with those athletes, right, they arrived at a equilibrium because he's also, you know, known for, you know, in his own space trying for, you know, a period of weeks, trying to run as much as 200 to 250 miles a week, you know, and so for him to say 100, it's not reaching towards the most extreme thing. It's trying more extreme things and trying to find, you know, okay, what's the most amount of adaptive stress that we can create and sustain. 
I think first people um, are frustrated not being able to get the same results Lydia did tend to dismiss it because there's this myth of like, well, you know, you can just, you know, if the, if that there's just these diamonds in the rough and that if you throw hundred miles a week at them, then people will turn into that. And I, you know, I think a lot of people have that concept, you know, and they try to get to that because they think it's going to be this, you know, Jack and the, you know, magic beanstalk or whatever kind of thing. They're just going to go shooting up into the stratosphere of performance. But, you know, I think that, um, you know, so then people say, well, this isn't producing this and your littered, you say champions are everywhere and all I have to do is train them. But the reality is like, clearly we see that most people don't actually get any better and they'd be better off running 50 miles a week, blah, blah, blah. And I think that's just like a sort of resentment driven bias. And I get that as having been somebody who, you know, has tried to do a fair amount of running. And, you know, for me, I couldn't, I never exceeded 80 to 85 miles a week of running um, because it was the effort. I know now the effort that I was doing, I just couldn't continue to extend that amount of effort for that much time. Um, It was just too exhaustive, right? And that your volume is a product of your speed and it's a product of your intensity. And I had too much intensity and I just generally wasn't really fast enough at that time. And so I would get to you know, get over 70 and I would start going towards 80 to 85 and I would just be, you know, getting to the point where, you know, I would just become cumulatively more and more tired, um, you know, and I was putting myself, you know, in a survival response state and asking for this like transformation and it doesn't work like that. And I think that, um, you know, he didn't, literally didn't collect these prime candidates, right? These, there were people just from the area that he maybe, you know, I tested and thought, okay, I think this person could, could run. And, but a part of the test was like, were they willing to keep participating, right? So you're also selecting people based on like, what's their level of engagement or enthusiasm for what um, they're doing. You know, second, right, we can take the understanding that in planning and organizing our training, we want to be thinking about training out of a concept of um, maximum steady state. So that means we need to think about how we define the maximum lactate steady state. And so pedagogically, um, you know, what self-referencing point did they arrive at? So you can't really know the paces, and I think it's because they don't really matter. But I think, you know, it's a perceptual, you know, quarter effort feeling relative to LT. It's not actual literally 25% of that or 75% or 100% of that, you know, and so all of those in turn are a feeling. So it's all about a language of perception and you would have to go and be in that um, space, right? It would have been cool if somebody had gone and done like an ethnographic or a cultural anthropological study of kind of this group of athletes at the time. But I mean, to my knowledge, that doesn't exist. Nobody was applying the anthropological method of cultural study to that group. But I think you would have seen um, some different conclusions and different understandings. Um, you know, and I think their paces are a function of their fitness. You know, Lydiard said that for top class runners, you know, that they don't jog around, but, you know, he described them running between speeds of six minute pace to five twelve pace. Okay. So I think it's probably reasonable to conclude that, you know, their lactate threshold pace wise you know, in a controlled environment probably would have been around, you know, 5.10 pace, 5.15 pace. And so I would say probably, you know, if you think back to that 
example, right? That maybe one quarter effort was running six minute pace, right? And then it scaled between that six minute pace to five, 12 pace or five, 10 pace. I think that makes a lot of sense. So maybe five, 12 per mile was uh, their um, lactate threshold, right? So that's, you know, that full effort, right? And so that would mean that, okay, you know, the training that they're doing becomes a product of the intensities, right? That they're trying to pursue, right? And so what does that mean? Well, their distances they run are going to be a product of that. It means that the tempos that they produce are going to be a product of that. And I think rather than say it's inconceivable that people could do that, we should be saying, well, why can't we do that, right? We should be able to get similar results doing the same thing. And I think like there's nothing wrong with taking something that somebody else recognized, um, you know, and articulated and then and trying to do it. And I think actually it would be a really interesting challenge um, for a coach or a group of athletes to really genuinely um, recreate this because I think basically maybe nobody has done this, um, at least sort of in like kind of the um, Western American uh, like spaces of training because we have so many other ideas that are contrary to this. But, you know, the progression comes from the work being done, right? The pro- because the work is creating that environmental stress and that's what we're trying to design. Okay. And, and things like when you realize that, you realize like taking days off and you realize that not being physically active twice a day, that those are significantly negative because they're significantly reducing the signaling to the body to create these adaptive responses. And that when you're in that like survival zone of survival response solicitation, that like, well, that's not going to work out very well for you. But if you're in that more efficient zone, well, it's more efficient because you can get more training response because you can do it more frequently. Okay, Uh, like Lydiard is literally saying repeatedly that you can't worry about the pace. You should find the effort. Quote, you need to measure a range of courses for this training with each kilometer recorded in some way so that you can time yourself with reasonable accuracy. They are not, however, to be used as one kilometer pegs in a race. The effort must always be controlled. Unquote. That to me sounds like a kind of can we track in a field test way is our lactate threshold improving and that you're looking at this and you need to maintain the right level of intensity and you can't exceed that level of exertion, right? And so maybe over time, they're getting to the point where they're at, by the end of this, they're running 5.12 to 6 minutes a mile as their training range when they're going out and they're doing those runs at that intensity, and that we don't know where they're starting at the beginning. But you can do a lot in six months if you do it the right way, but we don't really think that a lot can be done because the training that we use is so intensive that we usually see this like initial burst, and then we just kind of hug, hover at this, this level, and we see pretty marginal to minimal gains developing out of that point. And like remember, our brains haven't changed. We have the same perceptual and physiological thresholds that you know that group of athletes did and that other group of athletes who've arrived at this concept too have done and you know i think in the modern era we have displaced this intuitive sense uh, for this state with things like ftp or you know percentages of vo2 max i mean i don't think that the new zealand guys 
don't seem to give evidence for asking themselves, well, what's like my my peak ceiling? I need to be able to do whatever. I mean, I think it's the articulation. They're not really worried about a ceiling. Like if there's a ceiling, well, maybe we'll find it and maybe we won't, right? But not getting obsessed about a ceiling that you aren't anywhere close to. Um, one more quote. In theory, you will now be doing a lot of running at speeds just within your maximum steady state to place the utmost safe aerobic pressure on your cardiorespiratory and cardiovascular systems and gain the best possible progressive development. Always. However, you must finish each of your runs with the knowledge you could have run a little faster. Unquote. You know, train don't strain is the most famous aphorism uh, from this. And it's, again, an example of something that, you know, people are probably familiar with, but just like don't get it. And I know that we don't get it because we aren't doing it. You know, when you train like this, you can train at lactate threshold for the periods of intervals or repetitions. You can do it twice a day. But when you get to the end of the session, it's like, okay, and what, right? There's no, wow, I'm wrecked, I'm dead. There's none of that sort of like rush that we sort of seem to seek by training like too hard, right? So you don't have that. But then it's, I'm hungry, I need to take a nap, I need to go to bed two hours earlier. Like, that's where you you can recognize that you're doing that. And so it is it is hard um, to do in that sense, as, as we've said before on the podcast. I think one of the things that I've always found fascinating is the way that this relates to my sense of perceived exertion. Um, I've always found it insanely slow feeling to try to run or ride in races. Um, And is this because my millimole is either low or spiking? And I think it's really because uh, lactate threshold isn't tied to race intensity the way that we think it is. You know, I find it to be true that I simply can't do um, in training what I can do in racing. And actually, the mindset shift there has been to recognize that that's totally fine. And all of the training that I've really done, including a lot of times that I felt that was what I needed to ask of myself, was like race pace derived, right? Um, And then that's probably going to be made only worse and worse if your lactate threshold is further and further away from that, which is if you're not really an athlete who either by intention or like we've said before, some people by just sort of coincidence end up being able to do training that is more... Um, effective at eliciting those actual substantive benefits, which are reflected by, you know, not wholly contained within, but are reflected by lactate threshold, um, you know, that are so critical. And that's going to be different for different people. Um, And the kinds of training sessions uh, we do at the point where lactate accumulates is going to be very different too. You know, I have had no problem, you know, taking this and going out and doing, you know, four by 2K run at 5.30 in the morning and then coming back and, you know, riding my bike at lactate threshold for an hour, you know, and then doing, you know, ultimately maybe five, six or seven sessions of lactate threshold over the course of a week. And I say that, you know, with the understanding that I do 14 sessions a week um, unless I have a meeting or something or the, the weather is just like, you know, if it's total ice and it's dark out, you know, I'm not looking to get smoked by a snowplow. So I'm not going to go out and and run in those conditions per se, but by and large, right, you know, half of what I'm doing, you know, 
can be done at that intensity. But maybe for other people, that's different, right? And so that's where you can't give yourself a prescription externally. It has to be developed through like your own feedback and well, what is my limit? And then that's probably going to change over time. If you read the couple articles from Marius Backen's uh, website, um, one of the things that he talks about and emphasizes, we need to be below muscular fatigue. Uh, Muscular fatigue is the biggest limiter to training. And that's another example of when you really think about that and you start to look for that, it makes a huge um, amount of of difference. And I've actually changed, um, you know, the way I try to think about strength training because any amount of significant resistance training in terms of strength training is going to add a lot of muscular fatigue. And, you know, I think that there's general benefits to strength training for people. Um, and it's good to do that in life, um, just for holistic, um, health purposes, especially like, you know, with the understanding that you're not going to be infinitely youthful. But when you're doing that, right, you got to recognize that that's going to cause fatigue. So I'll do that at the end of the harder days if I'm planning to go very easy or just sort of do whatever uh, the next day. Because it's like, okay, if I have that muscular fatigue and really understand that I will have that muscular fatigue, that's that's important. And then it's also, you know, with the weightlifting, thinking about lifting uh, more frequently instead of lifting absolute failure and overload because if you want to be developing um, your endurance capacity you know having two or three massive lifts a week are really going to trash you Um, you know and then you look at like Sebco with circuit training right well there you're looking at really building up to this level of work that you can do where if you're doing that many reps you know at that well that's incredible strength right and you could look at that and be like wow you know, that's that's where it's at. That's the level of intensity. But really it would be like, that's incredible to take that amount of work and bring it into, um, you know, and under that kind of level of intensity to where you can do it frequently. And, you know, for me at two millimoles, if I go really over that, I'm at the point of where I start to notice muscular fatigue. But when you look at, you know, the article, um, you tend to see that, you know, it's the suggestion of, you know, being well, 2.3 to 3.0. For some people, that might work. And um, for Katir, doing those, uh, you know, 20 by 400s, right, getting up to three millimole, right? Well, we don't know what his lactate curve looks like. You know, is he doing what I think a lot of people are doing, which is just saying, okay, three millimole is the new four millimole, and then just trying to train to that. Um, And we know that there's confusion because a lot of the online models show totally different uh, values for a lactate steady state. Um, and you know, some of them that show, um, like the lactate, uh, steady state, um, at two will show that the steady state line before the point of in- inflection or the point of which of accumulation, it will show it hovering around two, right? But for you, it might be around 0.8. And the other factor to that, too, is that, like, you can see some variance um, in terms of how much lactate you'll be producing at that, because there are factors that can influence that, too. Um, So that's where understanding, you know, what it's supposed to feel like is important. And then you're using the lactate meter in workouts sometimes to basically just try to see that, okay, I'm working at the perceived exertion. Um, Is it accumulating or not? And a little accumulation isn't, like, bad, you know, but again, it's, like, primarily about staying under that uh, level of muscular fatigue and then, you know, keeping that uh, 
level of exertion down so that you can do a lot of that kind of stuff because doing more of it more frequently um, is more effective than doing a small amount with significant muscular fatigue, which means you can do it uh, you know, much less frequently. And then the, right, there are people who point to the step above where the lactate started accumulating, um, and that doesn't make sense. Um, and, you know, basically what we're seeing is that there's a massive disconnect between the idea of uh, two millimole as the lactate threshold and, you know, what that actually is. And then, of course, you see the equivalence of FTP, four millimole, anaerobic threshold, and lactate threshold as all being the same thing. But what we want to recognize is that the significant point that you're trying to determine and identify when you're doing training is to say, where do I start to accumulate and what does that feel like? And that I want, I can train up to that intensity and what I want, you know, my training to be variations of up to and and below that, but there's not really additional value to going beyond that. And I think if we, you know, break this down um, a little bit further and, you know, you can also see some stuff related to this on our Instagram page. Um, Here's what people are saying. You know, as I've said in other episodes, uh, the terms are just all over the place. I think we could research further on this, but I also think a part of the point here is that um, from the surface level perspective, it's just very confusing. And um, that's a polite way to say that, you know, the polite way to say it is to say that it's complicated. Uh, I think if we wanted to be more frank, um, I think the honest thing to say is that people just don't understand what they're talking about. And I think it's okay in a way, right? It's okay for us to talk about things um, that we don't aren't necessarily expert on because what does it really mean to be expert? You know, that's what comes, you know, arguably a form of censorship. And what we want is like dialogue and discussion. Um, one of the things that I enjoy about doing this podcast and, and putting this content out here for people is that for me, it's, it's meaningful and I get new ideas and it gives me a space to be metacognitive in a way that I might not be able to be otherwise. So it's good to discuss these things, but we also then need the skill. If we're going to have that nature of discussion, we need to pair that with the skill to really think about that in more precise and meaningful and targeted and essentially effective ways. Um, you know, I, so I say this, right, with the full knowledge that I'm also a person that I have limited understanding, um, but I think we need to acknowledge that being wrong about something, um, you know, is not, uh, it's not about being polite, right? You know, we need to be able to be comfortable um, with that failure in understanding, and that's where we grow, right? Just like, you know, in, in training, right? You know, sometimes in training is, is adverse, Right. And we're not, you know, hitting it out of the park. We're not doing the cool speeds or the cool watts, but we are at the point where we're growing and developing. So here's, I think, what we want to say and what I believe the correct conclusion is to say is that lactate threshold, that's where lactate starts to increase. Um, And with Marius Backen is writing about training at 2.3 to 3.0 millimole, he's saying that, you know, based on the assumption that, you know, there's this threshold point is three and not four. And so therefore, 2.5 to 3 is the point where it's increasing. And we could relate that back to a Lydiard interpretation, right, of saying, well, 70 to 100% of that sort of steady state type feeling. But he also acknowledges in his writing that uh, some people have low levels. And it seems to me that the scholarship is just assuming that um, those low levels only occur in certain hyper elite populations. 
I don't agree with that because I have evidence, you know, for myself and people that I've, um, you know, let use my lactate meter and we look at all these different tests and that's clearly not the case. Um, and so, you know, the all caps, however, here is that your lactate threshold is subjective. And it seems that for folks who do a lot of volume of good aerobic work, maybe you over time will exhibit um, a lower accumulative number, right? You might be at one millimole at your steady state, and it would then build up at that turn point it would, from one, it would go to like 1.8 and 2.3, et cetera. Um, and that's okay, right? And that's where, though, we need to understand the concept, right? And that conceptual understanding and actionable understanding are not distinct from one another, that they are interconnected, that they're, they're the same thing, that understanding concepts better is more effective. All right, so where are we going to go from here? Well, next episode pursuing this kind of topic or thread is going to look at specifically um, things like um, lactate clearance, lactate buffering, lactate steady state, lactate sweet spot, lactate utilization, lactate shuttling, lactate tolerance, this whole forest of concepts that we have brought up out of the ground as a result of this. And we're going to try to determine um, where in this do we see things that we would want to use when thinking about creating our own environment towards adaptation and where are the things that we want to steer away from. Because these are all concepts and that our decisions are totally informed at all times by our levels of conceptual understanding. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Black Cats Run. I hope that you're enjoying the podcast both today and in general. If you are, we always appreciate it when people take a moment to reach out to other people they know and to share the podcast or repost it on your Instagram story if it's something that you found thought-provoking and meaningful. If you are wondering how you can better apply these kinds of concepts to your own training, feel free to send us a message on our Instagram account. You can also follow us there as well, at Black Cats Run. We have some additional content and visuals relating to the ideas and concepts that we've talked about um, on both today's episodes and other episodes. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future where we're going to talk about the optical illusions of perception. We're going to talk about the concept of recovery. Is recovery even real? and more top secret guest episodes as well. And we'll catch you next time. Mm -hmm.